You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Today, Krika is just delighted to have with us um, such an amazing teacher and scholar. Donald Pankos is Professor Emeritus in Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. There, he taught courses on Soviet and post-Soviet politics and foreign policy and the politics of Eastern Europe, and he taught there from 1969 to 2013. Don completed his MA, PhD, and Certificate in Russian Area Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and earned his doctorate under the guidance of one of the university's foremost scholars, Professor John Armstrong. At UW-Milwaukee, Don was a founder of its Russian and East European Studies Committee in 1970 and its Polish Studies Committee in 1979. His many publications have focused on Poland and the Polish diaspora in America. In the 1990s, he was engaged in Poland's, the Czech Republic's, and the Hungarian Republic's admission into the NATO alliance. And his work has been recognized on a number of occasions, most notably in 2010, when he received the Officer's Cross of Service from the President of Poland. And the topic of his talk today is on Tadeusz, or Thaddeus Kosciusko. It's wonderful for me to have a chance to meet with some of you and, and uh, have a chance to talk with you about a really an interesting subject, uh, the story of Thaddeus Kosciusko, or Tadeusz Kosciusko. Uh, not only who was he, but why is he important even to this day, 200 years after his death. He died on October the 15th, 1817. That's only about a month from now we'll be observing that 200th anniversary of his passing when he died at almost the age of 72 years of old. He died in Switzerland and uh, uh, of course uh, uh, had a storied career and a significance that as I will say uh, to this very day. Now what I've done here, first of all, is to provide you with uh, some handouts. And I'd like to spend a couple of minutes just going over them. Uh, Obviously, you can look through them throughout the entire uh, presentation and afterward and make any questions you have about them. But I wanted to provide that with you. I like to give out handouts. Uh, We have an opportunity to do the visuals. But I like handouts because handouts you can take home with you. You can read them. You don't have to just be waiting, you know, looking at them, and then all of a sudden they change the screen and something else, and you've, you've lost it. Here you have something you can look at. And let me just go over these handouts with you. The first two, the first page, of course, shows two uh, paintings uh, of Thaddeus Kosciuszko, so you got a chance to see what he looked like. Uh, the first picture, the left one, is from the Kosciuszko Foundation, uh, done by a painter named Hedek Chodorkovsky. Very nice painting of Kosciuszko uh, at, the, at the West Point, you see, uh, with the American flag behind him. The other painting was, was, uh, was painted in 1897 and uh, was delivered, was, uh, it's in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It was donated by the Polish National Alliance in connection with the 100th anniversary of Kosciuszko's being in the United States. He was here in 1797-98. That was his last time in the United States. It's a wonderful picture of Kosciuszko. Then we, of course, there are so many pictures of him. We could, we could spend a whole time just looking at all the paintings that have been done 
of Thaddeus Kosciuszko. The second page gives you a little bit of a chronology of the important elements of his life. I will be referring to them, uh, most of them today, but you can get a chance to see some of the things about uh, the life of Kosciuszko. And the bottom there you see a little note about the monuments that have been uh, created in honor of Kosciuszko in America and in uh, Europe. And of course, uh, uh, his place in Polish history. Uh, this is no exaggeration. You know, back in 1943, the president of the Kosciuszko Foundation called together the scholars of that time during the terrible time of World War II, and he asked them to put together a book of the great men and women of Poland. This was at a time when Poland's very future was really being threatened by the Nazis and the Soviets uh, invading and destroying Polish culture and the people of Poland. And these scholars got together and they did a study of the great Poles in history. And guess what? Kosciuszko was one of the six greatest Poles in history, according to a survey that was conducted at that time, along with people like Copernicus, Madame uh, Maria Skłodowska-Curie, uh, Frederick Chopin, Adam Mickiewicz, uh, Henryk Sienkiewicz, uh, and there was Kosciuszko. So uh, it's a really a quite a remarkable fact that he was identified as one of the six greatest. If they did this study again, I'm sure they would obviously Pope John Paul II would be in there too. But the point is, that's how highly regarded he was as a figure in Polish history. If you look at the next page, you see that I will refer this uh, back to this in my talk, but you see two historic statements by Thaddeus Kosciuszko. One of them was made on May 7, 1794, and this has to do with his effort to lead Poland to freedom and to liberate the serfs of Poland, one of the most revolutionary, remarkable events that could have taken place at that time. And then on the bottom, we have the copy of his American will that he signed in 1798, just before he left America for the last time. Uh, we'll talk about them uh, a little later. Now the next page you see, it's my little rendition of a map. <laughs> it's a map of uh, the American colonies at the time of the American War of Independence. And you can see the point here is to show where Kosciuszko was, okay? And primarily he was in New York and in the Carolinas during the Revolutionary War. And uh, you can see that there are the various towns and the battles are uh, circled with a little X through them. Uh, I've also put a little inset there that shows the Hudson River Valley where uh, Kosciuszko's two major contributions to the American War for Independence uh, took place, uh, Saratoga and West Point. The next page is, this is a map of Poland. And now it looks like a very complicated map, but it's not. I tried to put together a lot of different things on this map to give you an idea about where Kosciuszko was at this historic period in Polish history. The dark lines show the borders of Poland at the time of the first partition, first land grab against Poland in 1772. Look how gigantic Poland was, 288,000 square miles, the largest European country after Russia in size. Okay, In 1772, Russia, Austria, and Prussia combined to invade Poland and take over 80,000 square miles from Poland. You can see on the Russian side, it's Roman numeral one. Uh, the Austrians, uh, letter X, and the Prussians, letter A, okay? In 1793, after the failure of the, uh, the Poles to defend the Constitution of 1791, uh, a reform constitution aimed at saving the country, uh, the, the, the Russia and uh, Prussia uh, uh, combined to make the second partition. You can see the Roman numeral two 
and letter B. So you can you get an idea about how small Poland was after that. Only about 80,000 square miles, uh, only about 30% of what Poland was before. And then we see the third partition, which followed the failure of Kosciuszko's insurrection of 1794. The Russians take a le a Roman numeral three, the, Pol the Austrians join in with the letter Y, and the Prussians took C, the section C, including the capital of Warsaw, okay? And now you also see on this map where Kosciuszko was born. Uh, it's in present-day Belarus. And you see also a number of other things on this map. Uh, here's an idea here. Look at Kiev on the right. Kiev is just on the border of Poland at that time. At one time, Kiev was part of the Polish Commonwealth in the 1600s. But even in uh, 1772, Kiev was very close to the border of Poland's, uh, the Polish Commonwealth. And see how large Poland was. Uh, uh, you also see uh, battles where Kosciuszko took leadership role in, the, in 1792, the Battle of Zelenca and Dubienka. He, he was one of the most successful of the military leaders who tried to save Poland from Russia and the Russian invasion in 1792. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. And then finally, we have the battles work that Kosciuszko took part in uh, as a leader in the 1794 insurrection, most notably Ratzwawice, you see just near Krakow on the bottom, and you see near Warsaw, Maciowice. Ratzowice, great victory, Maciowice, crushing defeat. So this map gives you a little bit more than just simply the map of Poland, but it shows you something uh, about the history of that entire period. Of course, after 1795, Poland was wiped off the face of the map of Europe until 1918. The next picture, the next, the next picture here, this is a, just a fragment of a tremendous painting that was done by the artist Jan Sticka, S-T-Y-K-A, S-T-Y-K-A, Jan Sticka. Uh, this, was, this was a painting that was uh, created in, uh, in connection with the 100th anniversary of the uh, Kosciuszko insurrection of 1794. It was shown for the first time in the city of Lvov, at that time called Lemberg. It was an Austrian uh, city, Austrian-controlled city. And uh, uh, in, this, uh, in this painting, we have this picture of the Battle of Ratzlawice. You can see the Russian troops on the left, and you see the peasants overcoming the Russians on the right side. Now, this painting is interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, first of all, how could it be done? Poland was not a free country. The Austrians permitted it to be, to be, uh, to be, made, to be done. But the, the, this painting, you know how big it is? 40 feet high and 360 feet long. Do you believe this? This is something. 40 by 360. Oh. This painting was, of course, created at a time before movies, before TV. I mean, how do you get across the magnitude of some tremendous event. And uh, Stickow was capable of doing this. Of course, he didn't paint it himself. He had dozens and dozens of people helping him. But uh, he painted this thing. And uh, of course, it was recovered later on. And it is, and it is in existence today in the city of Wrocław on, in Western Poland. And it is in a kind of a carousel. So you can go around in a circle and see this magnificent painting uh, of the Battle of Ratzlawice. The inset shows another part of this gigantic picture. This is just a fragment of the picture. Just think how big this thing is. And in this picture, you see uh, Kosciuszko, and he's dressed in peasant outfit. 
He's dressed with the long uh, sukban of the, of the peasants, you see, leading this charge. And then lastly, we have just a series of pictures that show you something about the monuments to Kosciuszko. On the left, you see the great monument. I think the greatest monument in the United States to Kosciuszko is in Washington, D.C. How many of you have seen this monument? How many of you have been there? Have you seen this monument before? Uh, this is easy to see if you just, uh, when you, if you're ever past the White House, if you're invited by the president, he may just do that, you never know. Uh, uh, comes to the White House, it's, it's in the park that's right in front of the White House, it's in Lafayette Park, which is a square right in front of the White House, and on the, in this park there are statues on all of the corners. The four statues are to the four foreign leaders, foreign military leaders who worked on behalf of Polish and of American independence, uh, Kosciuszko, uh, Lafayette, Rochambeau, and von Steuben. And this, paid, this particular statue uh, monument is enormous. It shows Kosciuszko, of course, and all of the battles he, he took part in, in America and in Poland. Okay, this, this statue was donated to the United States and to the people of our country from the Polish National Alliance. They raised about a million, uh, $600,000 to, to, uh, to uh, create this monument. Uh, it was, uh, the design was picked by President Theodore Roosevelt. He chose this design. And the, uh, and the dedication in 1910, May 1910, uh, President William Howard Taft was there uh, officiating at the dedication ceremonies of this monument and also a monument paid for by Congress, a monument to Kazmir Pulaski, which is in Washington as well. And if you look on the right side, you see, uh, it's hard to really get an appreciation of this, but this is the famous Kosciuszko Mound just outside of Krakow. And uh, this mound, 300 feet high of uh, uh, soil, from all of the fields of battle that Kosciuszko took part in in both the United States and Poland. It was created after his death by the people of Poland. They carried soil all from all over the regions of Poland and this monument is there today. This is part of a, a kind of a pre-Christian Polish cultural experience. Great heroes, you build mounds in their memory, just like the pyramids of Egypt, right? So you have this great mound outside of Krakow. And on the bottom you see, of course, our Milwaukee monument to Kosciuszko, uh, which was dedicated in 1905 and has been re restored in 2013. So you can look at these things and refer back to them as I make my comments uh, in the presentation I just want to give you. I think we're, I think we're moving along okay here. Now let's uh, say, if the, I really want to just talk about two things here, and that is who was Kosciuszko, okay, what do we know about him, and secondly, why is he important today? Why is he someone who's important today, 200 years after he passed away? Now, uh, first of all, uh, we should say something about Kosciuszko's life. He lived seven, nearly 72 years, okay, he was born uh, to, uh, to in, into, the, into the class called the Schlachta or Gentry uh, noble class in Poland, okay? Uh, his parents were not particularly well-to-do, but they were obviously pretty well off. The villages that they, that they owned had about 33 peasant serf families working the land, so they were not penniless, 
Okay. Now, the Polish nobility, we should say something about them, rather remarkable nobility, right? Uh, maybe 10 to 12% of the entire population of the Polish Commonwealth uh, claim to be nobles. Okay. I mean, in France at the same time, about 1.5%. 10 to 12% of the population identified as nobles. And they ranged from the top to the bottom. Some were so powerful, wealthy, uh, they had hundreds and hundreds of villages under their ownership. They were like kings in their own way uh, in the amount of territory and power they commanded. And on the bottom you had peasants, well they had nobles who practically had nothing. They didn't even have anything more than maybe a coat of arms that they would hang on the wall of their house. They didn't even have boots sometimes. They didn't have a horse, but they were nobles. And they were all considered to be brothers. Brothers, the Polish nation, the nation of the Szlachta, right? So Kosciuszko was part of that. Uh, although he was, where was he? Somewhere probably on the bottom third of the noble class in terms of his family's position. Now his father and mother were quite impressive to Kosciuszko. Uh, his father was a, a very tolerant toward the peasants that he, that he ruled and had ownership rights over. Uh, he treated them with a lot of dignity, more than he needed to. And uh, his mother was filled with a lot of patriotic messages to her, her kids, her kids uh, glorying in the glories of the past of Poland. So he was filled with a great deal of uh, appreciation of his heritage and at the same time uh, he learned something about brotherhood and tra treating people uh, better than they needed to be. Now, uh, let's, let's look at Kosciuszko's life in terms of three periods, three periods of his life, okay? Uh, the first 30 years, 1746 to 1776, the second period from 76 to 96, and the third period from 1796 to the time he died. Uh, so 30 years, about 20 years, 21 years. Uh, obviously, the most important period is that second period when he was really a significant political figure both in America and in Poland, but let's look at him in terms of these three periods. Uh, in that first period, of course, Kosciuszko was growing up, uh, being educated, okay, falling in love, uh, <laughs> traveling. Uh, he was learning a lot of things. He was educated, uh, and also he was sent to Warsaw to study at the School of the Knights. Not the night school. He was not in the night school. He was in a day school, I think. But the point is, he was in the School of the Knights that was created by the Czartoryski family. You know, the, as I say, the Polish nobles, at the top you had these magnates, the Czartoryskis, the Pototskis, right, the Radzivils. They were really rich and powerful. And the bottom you had almost penniless nobles, okay? But still nobles, not peasants, nobles. Okay, uh, he studied at the Knights School and learned a great deal about uh, soldiering, and he learned, of course, all of the other things that you would learn in a college type of an atmosphere. Uh, he had a kind of a sad experience, of course, of, of romance. He fell in love with the uh, daughter of a very powerful magnate, and this magnate was, didn't want to have anything to do with Kosciuszko. He didn't want his daughter to marry down, even though he was also a part of the gentry. So uh, Kosciuszko tried to uh, elope with her, okay? And guess what happened? Uh, they, the, the father found out, uh, he has his guards come out, they beat up Kosciuszko, put a price on his head, he had to get out of the country. Uh, he had very sad experience because he really loved this girl and later on he did meet her. He later on met her but, uh, but he never had a chance to marry, he never did marry and uh, although he, I think he was certainly sound to, 
felt he seemed to be quite uh, attractive to women. He had many romances, but he never married. Uh, in the in the late night, 1760s, Kosciuszko uh, is in France. He's sent to France. Uh, the family, uh, the Czartoryskis, helped him go to France. He studied there at the uh, in the School of Engineering, and he became a military engineer. Now, military engineering, very important field of study. Okay, I mean, if you're a military engineer, you help in building fortresses. You help in tearing down fortresses, besieging them. You learn how to build redoubts, so you can have you can have uh, your soldiers firing down on people and from positions of uh, of heights. Uh, you build trenches. Uh, you learn how to organize soldiers. It's very very important field. You know, very often you know our history books do not even mention engineers. Why? They mention the generals. The generals. But where did the generals get the idea about where to fight a battle? It's the engineers who tell them, this is, this is going to be a, you're on a high land, you want to fire down on people, uh, here's where the river is, here's a mountain range. Uh, engineers, very important, very ignored usually in, by historians. Uh, when, so, so while he was in France, of course, Kosciuszko also got another experience. And that was he became absorbed with the ideas of the French Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment is something which we should appreciate very much. We are all products of the Enlightenment, right? We're all products of the idea that we are rational human beings. We have to use our minds to figure out things. We have to test things. We just don't accept tradition. We just don't, blindly, some, some tradition is very valuable, but we don't just un, you know, blindly accept tradition without anything, without any question. So the French, uh, French Enlightenment, very important part of his growing up experience. And of course, the, the key ideas of the French uh, Enlightenment that, that, uh, that Kosciuszko absorbed, I think, that are most relevant here, was a belief in human rights and equality. Human rights and equality. What did Rousseau say? Man is all born together uh, free, but is everywhere in chains. The chains of class, the chains of wealth, the chains of discrimination. Uh, Kosciuszko became a great believer in human equality, human rights, okay? And that built on what his family was all about in Poland. And secondly, of course, the French Enlightenment was all concerned with uh, the idea of forming a representative form of government, a government that would not be based on absolutism, but would be based on the will of the people. And the best form of government would be a democracy. Huh? So uh, Kosciuszko really learned those values. That was the first period of Kosciuszko's life. In 1776, Kosciuszko is in Philadelphia. What happens here? Well, we know that the American War of Independence starts around 1775. You know, we have Concord, we have Bunker Hill, we have Lexington out there in Massachusetts, right? So in this, the revolution's starting. Kosciuszko's learning about this, he's hearing about it, and he's able to decide to go, he decides to go to America to support the cause of the American uh, colonists. He's able to get on a ship, takes him nine weeks to get to the United States, the ship sinks actually around Jamaica, he somehow gets another ship and he gets to Philadelphia. During that time he learns some English, not a lot of English, but some. Well, he gets to Philadelphia in August of 1776, only about a month after the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia. So he's right there at the very beginning. 
And uh, he presents himself to the various American leaders like Ben Franklin. And of course, they don't know what to do with this guy. He doesn't speak much English. He doesn't have any titles. He's not a prominent person. He doesn't have any letters of recommendations. They don't know what to do with him, you see? So uh, what, what, what can we do with this guy? But Kosciuszko was very persistent. And he was able to persuade people to recognize that he had some skills that were in short supply. Now, Philadelphia was a city that was vulnerable to British attack. The revolution was going on. Ships could come and seize the capital, seize, the, seize Philadelphia. Well, Kosciuszko was given the responsibility to fortify the Delaware River right around Philadelphia. And he did such a great job that they changed their opinion about Kosciuszko, and the American leaders decided to, to put him on the staff of the second in command of the American Revolutionary Forces, the general under General Horatio Gates. Gates, second in command after Washington. And so here we have the beginning of Kosciuszko's great moments in the United States. Okay, now, what happens here? Gates was stationed in, uh, in New York area. Okay, and uh, if you look at that map of the Americans, you see that uh, at the top of New York, you have this, this uh, river, this lake, I'm sorry, this lake, Lake Champlain. Looks like a dagger going right into America from Canada. You see that map? General Horatio Gates told Kosciuszko, he ordered him to go up to Fort Ticonderoga, which is on the bottom of Lake Champlain, there, right on the southern edge, and to, to give his advice to the commander about defending this very critical uh, fortification from a British attack from the north. Kosciuszko went there, and he talked with the commander, and he, he said to him, I've, I've, I've identified some real problems he got here, because this fort is here, but behind the fort there are mountains, there are hills. And if, and if somebody puts cannons up there, they can take the fort. The fort is vulnerable. And the commander told him, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Nobody can get anything up there. Well, when General John Burgoyne of the British Army was leading his forces down from Montreal, got to Fort Ticonderoga, what did he do? He wheeled up cannons up that hill. He, they tore down all the trees. They pulled, that, pulled those cannons up. And then suddenly, Fort Ticonderoga started getting bombarded. Within a half an hour, the whole thing collapsed. They were giving up. They, luckily, the Americans got out at nighttime, but they lost the fort. This is a disaster, a disaster. Well, when Horatio Gates learned about this and realized that, that Kosciuszko knew what he was talking about, uh, he raised his, uh, his, uh, his views about Kosciuszko a great deal. Now, here's the, really the important thing about this whole period. The British wanted to crush the rebellion. They, con they controlled all the cities. They controlled Boston and Philadelphia, New York, Charleston. They controlled the cities. They didn't control the countryside. Okay? They had the fleet of the British fleet surrounding the colonies, preventing any goods to try to come into the colonies. The idea was to defeat the colonies by now crushing the revolt, by splitting the northern colonies from the south. The idea was this, very clever idea. They had two armies. One army was down in New York under General Clinton, Henry Clinton. His job was to bring his army north along the Hudson River to Albany. On the other hand, you had General Burgoyne with a big army from Montreal to bring his army down uh, from, the, from Canada. And they were to meet. And the idea was to break the north from the south. 
to separate Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, Vermont from the rest of the colonies, and thus to break the, break the revolution right there and then. Burgoyne had an army of 8,000 men. Now, that, at that time, that is a gigantic army. It was about a couple of 3,000 Germans. The rest were uh, trained English soldiers. He had Indians, about 500 Indians with him. He had some loyalists who were on the side. This was a formidable army. Gates had 2,500 men, had really very little going behind them. They were not well trained. Okay, so what would he tell, what would he tell Kosciuszko? Go up north and do everything you can to stop the advance of General Burgoyne. And guess what he did? He did it. Kosciuszko, with his regiment that he was given, they went up north. They began to cut down all the trees to block the roads. They, 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 they were able to put the trees together like this so they, when they cut them down, so you couldn't just pull the trees apart. These big trees. Uh, they put boulders into the roads. They destroyed the village, the bridges that were, uh, that were on little rivers all throughout the area. So they made life miserable for the British trying to come down from the north. Uh, they stripped the land of all the food. Remember, he's got a lot of horses, no fodder, okay? Uh, they got rid of all the other food in the area. They started fires. They did everything possible to stop the British. It took Burgoyne's army 20 days to go 21 miles. Imagine how this was. They were stopped. They were, they were marched south was pretty much stopped. Uh, by the time they got to the area around Saratoga, they were demoralized. Okay? They had also been taking lots of shot, uh, shoots, shooting from the Americans in the woods. They were hiding in the woods. These guys with their red coats, you know, easy targets. And so this was quite a demoralizing experience. Now, at the area around Saratoga, there were a number of engagements beginning in the middle of September that, again, Kosciuszko was called upon to play a critical role. He, uh, he built these redoubts. He chose the areas of place where they to fire. Uh, he, uh, uh, he had his men uh, in trenches. Uh, uh, he, had the, he had the British Army pretty much trapped along the Hudson River. The battle lasted about a month. But after a month of battle, the American forces now 12,000 men, 12,000. They had mobilized from all over the area, and the British Army down to about less than 6,000. Burgoyne had no hope. He gave up. He gave up. He surrendered. This is the first time in history that an entire British Army surrendered. Entire history. When the news of the Battle of Saratoga reached France, it took about a month and a half to get to France from the beginning of December, France declared war on England. Spain declared war on England. The war had been essentially won. It's hard to believe that war was really, the whole thing changed. Why? Because the British had to remove lots of their troops and their ships from the colonies to defend England along the English Channel. And they also had to defend uh, Jamaica from a possible French takeover. That was the richest colony they had in the New World. It changed the whole history of the Revolutionary War. As far as, let's just think about this. In 1781, four years later, General Cornwallis, the British commander at Yorktown, had to surrender when his, his army could not get out of the peninsula of Yorktown in, the, in Virginia. Why? 
a French fleet surrounded Yorktown. On the land, his army was facing 19,000 soldiers, almost 10,000 French, less than 9,000 Americans. The French army, well, there were 12,000 around the ships. France made a difference in the Revolutionary War. Saratoga made a difference in the Americans' chance for victory. And Kosciuszko was critically important in this. And guess what? Horatio Gates said it. George Washington agreed. They recognized that Kosciuszko really had made tremendous contributions in that victory, one of the most important battles in American history. Kosciuszko now was assigned to his second major uh, responsibility in America. Uh, Washington wanted to have uh, a defense on the Hudson River uh, against a possible British invasion by, by water on the Hudson. And so he asked, he had Kosciuszko look for a place that would be a protected, kind of a, in the bend of the river with high, high ground. And Kosciuszko discovered an area. It's called West Point. West Point. And so at West Point, he immediately used all the men he had to start building fortifications. It took him 28 months, and they built impregnable fortifications at West Point, preventing any chance for a British invasion from uh, New York. Kosciuszko not only did that, but we know that after the war, he urged our government leaders to establish a military school for the training of professional officers where should it be? West Point. West Point. Uh, uh, he really is, in a sense, the father of West Point. Okay. Um, after that, he was transferred to the South. He wanted to. He wanted to lead men. By now, he was. His English was better, and he wanted to lead men. And down in the South, uh, in, the, in the colonies, he was fighting under now a new general, General Green, Nathaniel Green, and he took part in a number of battles down in Charleston and in South and North Carolina. Now, at the end of the war, the war ended really officially in 1783. Yorktown, 1781, but it took about 18 months to settle everything. And uh, the war was finally decided, and the treaty was signed in Paris, granting the United States its freedom, giving a lot of territory in the Middle West to the, to the colonies. At the, in 1783, at the end of all these activities, General Washington brought together all of his closest colleagues and officers. One of them was Kosciuszko, all right, at the Fonces Tavern in Philadelphia. At that, he gave his farewell speech to all of his comrades. And when he got to talk with Kosciuszko, he gave him some gifts. He gave them his pistols. He gave them his sword, which was engraved. And he took his ring off his finger and gave it and gave it, put it in Kosciuszko's finger. He thanked him. Not only did he thank him, but the American Congress, the Continental Congress, made a number of decisions there. They granted Kosciuszko American citizenship. Secondly, they promoted him to be Brigadier General. And thirdly, they granted him a pension of $12,000, quite a bit of money at that time, $12,000 as a pension in thanks to his service. Now, that really completed Kosciuszko's role in the American War of Independence, very significant role indeed. Now, Kosciuszko, what did he do then? He decided to go back to Poland. He had land in Poland. Uh, the fact is he was concerned about his, his future there. He went back, and the first thing he tried to do was to uh, contact the king of Poland and to be, to, to be considered for a military position. 
There were no jobs available. The Polish army was in terrible condition, very few soldiers, no officers, and it was really at the mercy of Russia, and he was, he was, he was turned down. In 1789, however, the parliament of Poland uh, created an army and created positions for the military, and Kosciuszko then was given the position of a major general, second in command of the Polish army, second in command. The only person ahead of him was the nephew of the king, <laughs> Joseph Poniatowski, who had no military training at all. 26-year-old guy, had no training at that time at all, but he was, had connections, right? So he was made the commander-in-chief. In 1791, the Polish parliament passed this historic constitution on the 3rd of May. This constitution was regarded by everybody in the West who looked at it as one of the most glorious achievements of human beings at that time. It created a system of representative effective government for the first time in Poland. It was a system that was going to provide for a strong army to defend the country. And finally, it promised toleration to all people living in the country formally. There was toleration before that, but now it was on paper in the Constitution. All religions, all nationalities, all religious groups, all were being to, to be tolerated. Tremendous idea, right? But not with Catherine the Great of Russia. She regarded this as something that was in, unacceptable. And she immediately launched an attack on the Poles. Now, Kosciuszko played a very critical role in trying to defend Poland. And these, these battles that I mentioned uh, that are on the map, uh, he was very successful in fighting uh, armies that were much larger. However, the king gave up. The king gave up. He allowed the constitution to be revoked. And he accepted the, the second partition of the country. Kosciuszko was so devastated by this, he left Poland. He went to France. Remember, this is in revolutionary times in France. Remember, French Revolution is going on. He was there for about a year. In the beginning of 1794, Kosciuszko returned back, made contact with a lot of his friends in the, in the country, and declared uh, himself to be the leader of a revolution to save the country, what was left of Poland. And this is the famous Pol Kosciuszko insurrection. Okay? This insurrection was in trying to not only just save that little piece of Poland that was left, but try to regain the lost territories. And the thing that Kosciuszko did that was really quite remarkable, of course, was uh, his decision to, uh, to, to offer, offer the serfs of, of Poland citizenship in return for fighting for Poland. Now, this was a remarkable develop, remarkable idea. But unfortunately, you know, news doesn't travel so fast in those days. And lots of the serfs and the peasants, what are they going to do when they hear this for the first time? Are they going to believe it? Are they afraid? Do they really think there's any hope? So, but nevertheless, he did have a lot of support among the serfs. And uh, at the Battle of Ratsovica fought in April of 1794, about 2,000 serfs joined in to his army, about 5,000 men altogether, and they defeated a very well-organized Russian army and even captured the cannons of the Russians, attacking them with scythes. It's all they had. This is a remarkable thing, okay? Um, Kosciuszko promised equal rights for everyone, okay? Uh, there was a first Jewish regiment was created. Since the time of the first century AD, it was created in Poland to fighting for the Polish independence. Uh, unfortunately, in October of 1794, the Poles were now being surrounded by Germans and Russian armies. 
Kosciuszko led a battle, led, led the forces that he had at a, a little area around Warsaw called Maciowice. There his army was overthrown, over, over destroyed, really destroyed. The entire army was pretty much wiped out. Kosciuszko himself suffered major wounds. He was hit on the head with a sword, got a big concussion. Somebody hit him in the back with a lance, another man hit him in the backside with a lance, knocked him off the horse, and uh, they finally found his body. Nobody knew where he was. The peasants wouldn't tell who was, who was there. But the Russians finally did find Kosciuszko laying there in this terrible pain. They put him in a cage, and Catherine had him wheeled back to St. Petersburg. The idea of putting him in a cage was to let everybody know that they actually caught Kosciuszko. Remember, this is the day where he had, uh, didn't have photographs. And so lots of people would say, he didn't really have, you didn't really catch the guy, you know, he ran away. But they, they claimed they had him and they did have him. Uh, Catherine had Kosciuszko put in prison in St. Petersburg and for, as far as she was concerned, let him rot in prison. She just, and then she, of course, with the Austrians and the uh, Prussians, then completed the destruction of Poland. They, they, in the third partition, they absorbed the rest of the country. Now Kosciuszko was in prison for about uh, a year and a half. Practically no care to his wounds. But in 1796, Catherine II died. And she was succeeded by her son, Paul, Paul I. Paul hated everything that Catherine stood for. If, if Catherine said it's Friday, he would say it's Tuesday. It, basically, he hated everything. You know, it was under Paul that he issued a decree that no, never again could a woman be the ruler of Russia. That's how much he hated Catherine, his mother. But he, because Catherine hated Kosciuszko, he liked Kosciuszko. He went to see him. He actually talked with him. He got doctors to try to help him recover from his wounds. And he offered Kosciuszko freedom. He said, if you just leave the country, if you just leave, you'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll let you go. Even I'll give you some money. He promised 60,000 rubles to Kosciuszko and they'll be deposited in a bank in London if you just get out. He even wore Polish uniforms when he saw Kosciuszko. Can you imagine? So Kosciuszko said, no, I cannot promise not to fight against you. That's what Paul wanted. You have to get, promise not to fight Russia anymore. Uh, he said, I can't do that. Then Paul said this, if you promise not to fight, I will release from prison all of the soldiers that have been captured by Catherine. Almost 20,000 men. And then Kosciuszko said yes. All right, if you free everybody, I will sign an agreement not to make war against Russia again, not to cause another revolution. And so Paul uh, uh, made that agreement with him and Kosciuszko was allowed to leave. This, now, this period now, uh, is really quite remarkable. Kosciuszko is allowed to leave the country, okay? He is a world hero. He gets to England, he is greeted everywhere as the great fighter for freedom. It's amazing, the English had been against Kosciuszko during the War of Independence, now they greeted him as a conquering hero. But that was really the high point of Kosciuszko in Europe. Let's look at the third period of Kosciuszko's life. After some weeks in, in, in England, Kosciuszko decided to come to America. Why? Well, most importantly, he wanted to take care of his pension. He had not been paid by the American Congress, and he needed the money. He was penniless, essentially. And so he got a ship, uh, was put on a ship, and came to the United States, came against the Philadelphia. Okay? And uh, when he, by that time, he was, uh, uh, he was getting a little bit better physically. 
he was welcomed again as a world hero. Can you imagine when he gets off the ship, he was carried to, uh, the, uh, to uh, the carriages by these mobs of people, and then the men pulled his carriage to the hotel where he was staying. They were praising him, cheering him to the skies. He was regarded as really one of the great heroes for freedom. He spent most of his time uh, for the next year and a half or so in Philadelphia, recovering from his injuries and meeting with all kinds of people, many of whom he had known from the time of the revolution. Okay? He made a few visits to other places. He was invited to, the, uh, to Mount Vernon by President Washington, who had just retired. He never went there, but he did basically uh, get that invitation. Uh, he met with uh, Gates again, but most importantly, he met and became a friend of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson now was Vice President of the United States. Okay? He was Vice President. And Thomas Jefferson and Kosciuszko spent a lot of time together in a little apartment on Pine Street in Philadelphia, where Kosciuszko was living in this very modest uh, uh, place. Now, what did they talk about? They talked mostly about freedom, liberty. They talked about the French Revolution. Now, this is a very important period of time for France, United States, and Britain. France is in, has a revolution going on. Napoleon is in power, has seized power, okay? The English are the big enemies. In the United States, you have two parties. The party in power is the Federalists. They're pro-English. The Thomas Jefferson was pro-French. Okay? Uh, there was a really serious crisis in America. Uh, you know, remember General President Washington, when he left office in uh, 1797, he gave his famous farewell address. And what did he say? We must stay out of entangling alliances. We're a little teeny country, five million people. We're nothing, we could be wiped out. We have to stay away from these great powers. And nobody's listening to him anymore. President Adams was a supporter of the British. Jefferson, his own vice president, supporter of the French. Uh, we have this famous XYZ affair. We have all kinds of French uh, people coming into the United States, revolutionaries causing a lot of trouble. Uh, what did President Adams do? He got Congress to pass a law, the Alien and Sedition Law. The Alien and Sedition Law said basically anybody criticizing the government could be imprisoned. It was really an attack on civil rights and the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press. It was very dangerous because Jefferson was identified as an enemy. Kosciuszko was even afraid of what might happen to him, right, because he was uh, identified with the French. He was very much admi admired the French for a deal. He hoped that the French would support Polish independence. Uh, Kosciuszko then decided he better leave. And he did leave. He left under uh, incognito. He actually had a passport with a different name on it to skip out of the country. He went back to the United States, went back to France. Now, what we say about Kosciuszko uh, before he left? Before he left for France, never to return, he was able, first of all, to get Congress to pass a law in which they paid him his pension. They gave him about $17,000 uh, for his pension. And, uh, and secondly, they gave him 500 acres of land in the Ohio Valley around Columbus, Ohio. So they gave him a substantial thank you after all these years of playing games with him, okay? So now he had no reason to stay in the United States. He wanted to go back to France. He hoped to meet with Napoleon. He hoped that France would help Poland's independence cause. Uh, as he left, he talked with Jefferson. 
and he asked Jefferson to do something for him. Would you be the executor of my property and will in the United States, my famous, famous American will? And Jefferson accepted it. And we have the statement of the American will right there. What was the statement, most profound statement you can imagine? What did it say? That Kosciuszko wanted Jefferson to use the money from his will to free slaves. Not only to free them, but to have them educated in the values of democracy and citizenship. That money, $17,000, $18,000, how many slaves could it have bought? Slave was about $200 a slave. He could have freed about over 150 slaves. That was the idea of Kosciuszko, not counting the land that he had that could be sold. Jefferson said, I'll do that, I'll do it. He promised to do it, okay? And Kosciuszko went back. Okay, now when Kosciuszko's back in France, he had every hope that France and, 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 and Poland would be able to work together. The Poles could get their independence through the efforts of the French revolutionaries. But when he met Napoleon, he came away with very, very negative views. He saw that Napoleon was only willing to use the Poles as weapons against the other countries, to you know, mobilize Polish soldiers to fight for their cause. You know, one of the, Napoleon's most loyal generals was General Henrik Dombrowski. He was leading a legion of Poles in Italy. What did Napoleon do after he made peace with some of his enemies? He disbanded the army and he broke up all these forces into different units, even sent some of them to Haiti to put down the Haitian rebellion, which was for freedom, believe it or not. <laughs> Poles were being used against their own values. Well. Uh, as far as, uh, as far as this uh, General Dombrowski is concerned, he remained always loyal to the, the Napoleon. But we remember him in one way. Because in the Polish national anthem, yes, Japolska, yes, Genela, right? Poland is, Poland is not gone, Poland is not lost as long as we live. What do we have, the lines? We have March, March Dombrowski from the lands of Italy to Poland, right? Under your leadership, we will reunite Poland, right? So Dombrowski is remembered even to this day because of his, because of that anthem, okay? Well, from the time of Kosciuszko's presence in France, after, after that, he had really very little to do with Napoleon. In 1806, this is about eight years after Kosciuszko arrives in France, uh, Napoleon uh, takes over the German uh, the Holy Roman Empire and takes over the whole empire and creates something different, kind of a puppet state called the Confederation of the Rhine. He defeats the Prussians, defeats the Austrians, and when he does that, he takes the lands that Prussia and Austria had taken from Poland and creates a little state. The state he created was called the Duchy of Warsaw, the Duchy of Warsaw. And, and, and Napoleon creates this little puppet state, and in return for expecting that the Poles will finally do something intelligent, he really had no respect for the Poles, to do something intelligent and fight for him. When he called upon Kosciuszko to support this Duchy of Warsaw, Kosciuszko refused. He refused, he didn't trust anything that, Kosci that Napoleon was doing, and he proved to be right. You know, in 1812, Napoleon led an army this is incredible, an army of 650,000 men into Russia 
from Warsaw to Moscow, about 900 miles, 650,000 men. And what come out of how many thousands of horses, how many wagons did he organize for this major invasion of Russia, which he called the Second Polish War? Why? In order to get the Poles to fight for him on the promise that he would restore Poland. Never really said it, but he gave that impression. You know how many Poles joined into that army? 90,000 Poles, the largest foreign contingent of any of the uh, foreign groups that were in this grand army of Napoleon. Well, that army was totally destroyed. When, they, when Napoleon got back to France, there was about 30,000 men, over 620,000 either killed in battle, frozen to death, shot, uh, eaten up by bears or whatever. The point is, this was a disaster, and almost all the Poles were killed. Almost all, about 85,000 of them lost their lives in this hopeless invasion of Russia. Kushishko, here's an old man by now. What does he do now? The, the, the Russian army is now in Paris. They defeat Napoleon, they're in Paris. He meets with the Tsar of Russia, believe it or not. Alexander I, the son of Paul. And Alexander says, we will do anything you want, Mr. Kosciuszko. We will restore a great Poland, as long as it's gonna be united with Russia. I will be king of Poland and Tsar of Russia. How do you like that? And Kosciuszko said, yes. Yes, if you restore Poland to what it was in 1772, I agree with that. Well, at the Congress of Vienna that took place soon after that, Alexander didn't get his way. The, the Prussians, the Austrians, the French, the English, they ganged up on Russia, and the result of his efforts was not a big Poland. It was a little teeny Polish state called, later on, the Congress Kingdom. The Congress Kingdom had a uh, constitution which was only good on piece of paper, it didn't have any significance. The king of the, this Congress kingdom was the Tsar, okay, and he put all of his pals in power to really control this little puppet state. Kosciuszko had no part in this. By this time he had moved to Switzerland and in 1817 he passed away, okay. Really a, a broken person, a defeated person, demoralized, because his great hope was a restored Poland. Now, why do we, that, that's the life of Kosciuszko. Now, what do we, so why, why is he significant? Let's just say a few words and we'll just close off here and get some questions from you. The, first of all, uh, I think it's very obvious that people saw Kosciuszko as a great symbol of freedom, okay, and independence. Look at all the monuments that have been erected in his name. Uh, look at how he was regarded when he died. You know, when he passed away in 1817, within a few months, the Tsar of Russia ordered that his remains be taken out of France and re returned to Poland, where he was placed in the Wawel Castle, the Wawel Cathedral, with the great kings of Poland. That's already in 1818. A couple of years later, we have the beginnings of this mound in 1828, the first monument to Kosciuszko at West Point. It was a pedestal, okay? Now, in the 1870s and 80s, we have something else happening here now. We have the rise of a tremendous Polish immigration to America. Now, the Polish organizations in America, the immigrant Americans, they were thinking like this. How can we prove to our fellow Americans that we are with you? Well, 
We have symbols that prove it. We have Pulaski, we have Kosciuszko. These are great people who were patriots in Poland and patriots in America. They stood for the same values, freedom and independence and democracy. And so we have the beginning of monument building. Okay, 1904, Chicago. 1905, Cleveland and Michigan, Milwaukee. 1910, we have Washington, D.C. Then we have another one in, we have the uh, monument in, uh, uh, at West Point. Then we have in Philadelphia, Boston. Uh, altogether, about 15 monuments constructed in honor of Kosciuszko in the United States alone. More monuments to Kosciuszko than any other figure of the American War of Independence except for George Washington. More monuments than any other, okay? Uh, that's, what, that's, that's one of the consequences. Uh, we have all kinds of other symbols of Kosciuszko's significance. Uh, the creation of the Kosciuszko Foundation in the, in the United States in 1925, aiming at trying to build uh, intellectual and cultural relations between Poland, uh, the independent Poland, and the United States. Now, uh, why, is, why is Kosciuszko important today? Why is he important? What makes him important? I, we could say a lot of things about this, but let me keep it very brief and just take two points. There are many monuments to Kosciuszko in stone, in paintings, just a tremendous amount of information about him. Uh, but what really is important is what Kosciuszko stood for. These are the living monuments of Kosciuszko. Uh, my, my personal belief is that uh, in, in America, the great monument to Kosciuszko is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is the, the, the law which is universally supported by Americans which emphasizes that there can be no discrimination based on anything like race, religion, national origins, or gender. That is a great principle, and it's in law of the land. That's a great testimony to Kosciuszko. What's the greatest testimony to Kosciuszko in Poland? The fact that Poland is free. And not only free, but it's a Poland of all the Poles. It's not just a Pole of the Szlachta. It's not just a Pole of the nobles. It's not just a Pole of the church. It is of the whole people, and that's what Kosciuszko stood for, a Poland of the whole people. And so today we have now the Third Republic of Poland, which is a firmly, very strong, healthy democracy where the values of Kosciuszko are being maintained in every real true sense. So if we think about Kosciuszko's importance, I would say the most significant thing is those living monuments. These monuments of stone are great. They should be there. Okay, the books about Kosciuszko, there are two great biographies of Kosciuszko, you know, one by Pula, James Pula, P-U-L-A. James Pula, published about 18 years ago, is called The Purest Son of Liberty. And a more recent one by Alex Storozinski, S-T-O-R-O-Z-Y-N-S-K-I, Storozinski, uh, who was the president of the Kosciuszko Foundation at the time. It's called The Peasant Prince. These are wonderful books, okay? And they make Kosciuszko relevant. But I think the most important thing about his relevancy is his values, freedom and democracy and human rights.